0: we did it sherry we did it yeah we got the book up for pre-release up for pre-ordering you can you can pre-order our book on amazon right now
1: ah Pre-order, okay.
0: It's called Sober Evolution and then the subtitle is Evolve Into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. It's a mouthful. It is. But that's because there are three sections to this book. The first section the first section is all about what led to my alcoholism. Because I think my story is extremely typical. It's not everyone's story, but it's very typical. Societal influences, family influences. Just everything around me, processed food, Doritos. I blame my alcoholism on Doritos. And I
1: don't know if you can use name brands.
0: Well, I did. And that's a big part of the first section of the book. There's three sections. The second section is about my recovery. And at the time, I was totally just anti-AA, anti-Alcoholics Anonymous. I've since grown to have a great appreciation for Alcoholics Anonymous and the people that are in the program and just they're wonderful people but the deal is Alcoholics Anonymous has a bad rap it's uh, the popular misconception is that it's just a bunch of sad sacks sitting on cold folding chairs in a damp church basement drinking bad coffee and smoking cigarettes and whining to each other in between donuts that they're shoving in their faces whining about how bad their lot in life is and that's what I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was that's what everyone had told me And I wasn't going under any circumstances. So again, um, that was what I believed. That's not what I believe now. But because of that belief, I had to find other ways to recover. And that's what the second section of the book is all about. And it's it's really a blessing that I didn't go to AA because I found these science-based approaches Mm -hmm. to recovery. I learned about brain chemistry and the subconscious mind and addiction nutrition And all this stuff that just didn't exist 80 years ago when the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written. And so I feel like I'm really blessed to have been, you know, I'll use the word forced. Forced by my misperception of AA to not go to AA and to try other things. Because the other things are, in my opinion, and for me, really more effective. Alcoholism is not a spiritual deficiency, in my opinion. It's a neurological disease. It's a real thing. It's an illness. And so um, I'm really proud of that second section because it lists everything that I did to recover. But then the third section, we shift gears because once I got sober, Sherry, I was like, okay, great. Uh, Everything's good now. My life should be perfect because I thought sobriety would fix our relationship. And I've got a question for you, Sherry. Mm -hmm. Did sobriety fix our relationship? It did not. It did not at all. Would you say it
1: made things worse? I would say it wouldn't necessarily have made things worse. It definitely exposed the broken parts of our relationship.
0: That we used to kind of cover up with. Yes.
1: Blaming the alcohol as, you know, all of our, you know, the answer or the excuse for all of our problems.
0: Yeah. I You blamed the alcohol. I blamed your intolerance of the alcohol. Yeah. But either so, way, once the alcohol was gone... It didn't appear that <laughs> either of those <laughs> things the were the problem.
1: Yeah. So, because the damage that was done from the alcohol to our marriage, it just exposed all of those those wounds.
0: So the third section of our book is all about the recovering your alcoholic marriage. It's about resentment and trust and intimacy and love and the kids. And what you and I had to do over a several year period to, to get the... The train back on the tracks, and frankly, our hope is that our experience, our shared experience, uh, because we know we know for a fact that it's very similar to the experience of many others. We we just hope that our story helps other people move through that difficult and and long process a little quicker
1: mm-hmm. because
0: they've got our example to kind of feed off of. Right. So that's the purpose of the book: sober evolution. And if you are ready, we would love to have you be part of the pre-launch team, the book launch team. And what that means is the official release date is September 23rd. If you order the Kindle version of the book on Amazon right now and you send us an email with your order number from Amazon, we will send you a PDF copy of the book right now and you can start reading right away. So you get a jump start on the general population, uh, you, and the the trade off is in return for us providing you with that PDF, the only thing we ask is once the book is officially released that you use that same Amazon account that you used to pre order the Kindle version and go on there and give us a review because then it'll show that you are it is an Amazon verified purchase review. Um, ah, yes. And we're not asking for a specific kind of review. We're not asking for you to say anything that we like feed you, or we don't. Our expectation is not that it be a glowing review. Our expectation is that it's an honest review. So tell us what you really think, because once we release the book, it would be nice if we had a bunch of reviews on the site that really will help us, you know, drive more people to find the same solution that we found in the pages and words in the book. Uh, the other thing, um, anyone on the book launch team is going to have an opportunity if they choose to buy a hardcover when the hardcover comes out with you and I, either of us, both of us, whatever the person wants, having signed that book and shipped directly to them um, anywhere in the United States. And we will give that to you at cost. We look at it like you've already bought the Kindle version as a you know part of this book launch team. We're going to give you the the hardcover with no no profit in it at all. Our publisher has agreed to that. and um, But the other thing about the publisher, they've limited the number of, of these book launch, pre-release um, advanced copy PDFs we can send out. So if you want part of to be a part of this, if you want to be a part of the book launch team and get the PDF right away, um, I kind of recommend that you jump on it because uh, we will hit the limit that the publisher is going to let us send out and then we can't do that anymore so for more information certainly you can just search for the book uh, on Amazon, it's called Sober Evolution and then send us your order number at matt at soberandunashamed.com or you can go to the webpage soberandunashamed.com and we'll give you um, more details on the book launch team and a link to the, the book on Amazon so that's enough promoting, seven minutes of promoting our book. Um, yeah, I kind of feel bad about that. You think I got a little windy there? Um, Yeah. Yeah. But
1: I don't think our regular listeners are going to be surprised. Yeah, that you th- got th- a little I got windy.
0: windy. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you're right. <laughs> All right, your turn. The topic we want to discuss today is we've had lots of conversations recently with people, a lot, really a lot of conversations about boundaries and detachment and the idea is they've got a loved one who's still drinking but is toying with the idea of sobriety or is trying to get sober, might be actively trying, might be actively working hard at getting sober, but they're struggling and they keep relapsing Um, or they, they haven't quite made the commitment yet to get sober and so they you wouldn't even call it relapsing they're just they're just drinking <clears throat> and the the people that we work with the people that we talk to are trying to set boundaries to protect themselves and trying to find ways to detach because loving an alcoholic can be devastating it can be deadly frankly to be strung along like that and deal with the stress and the anxiety and the depression of trying to love and support an alcoholic and so at some point you come to the stage where you realize you need to set hard boundaries and say, we are not going to violate these boundaries. I can't control you, drinker. Like, Sherry, you couldn't control my drinking. You couldn't control when I drank, and you couldn't control how much I drank. But you could control your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And you could control how you treated me and how you protected the kids and what connection we had in our lives. And... Um, I think it's really important that everyone understand, I've I've said this before and I've written about it a ton, we have this uh, therapist friend who convinced me years ago, he said Matt, there's only one reason that people make significant changes in their life, there's only one thing that causes them to make fundamental big changes, and it's not that they're hurting other people, it's not the begging or insistence of other people, it's that they themselves are in enough pain. And we said that, it was like a light bulb went off for me. It made me think about all the times, the 10 years of active alcoholism, when I would try to quit drinking and then I would relapse and I would start drinking again. And a lot of times during that 10 years, I would try to stop drinking for you. And I would say that specifically, I'm going to quit drinking for you, Sherry. And it just doesn't work because your pain, your frustration, your urging is never enough. It would never have been enough to get me to quit drinking. I had to grow into significant amount of pain, enough pain that I was willing to quit. And the things that caused me pain were the depression and the anxiety that's associated with alcoholism. And in, certainly in my case with my alcoholism. And it's one of these deals where the alcohol makes the anxiety and the depression go away. But then it, it fuels it and is the alcohol is what makes it come roaring back Worse than it ever was before to the point where I could barely get out of bed. I mean, I was in a really, really bad place in a ton of pain. But the other place, the other source of pain for me was when you would detach and, um, you know, create boundaries and not bounce back. When when we would argue or when I would drink too much, I mean, that that would cost us a week, the better part of a week anyway. Four or five days at a minimum, of sulking and licking our wounds and not getting along, and both both of us maybe feeling bad. Um, but it isn't like we bounced back. If I overdrank on, you know, over the weekend, I had a bad Monday, and then Tuesday we were back to great. I mean, maybe early on we were, but toward the end, um, it would take a long time to bounce back. And you know, I. I just kind of thought that you had become kind of this crusty hard bitch frankly because when I wasn't drinking you still weren't welcoming me with open arms and you weren't laughing and joking you were in a pretty bad place and I couldn't get that comfort and you know like connection I'm not even talking about sex I'm just talking about like hugs and Um, affection, I couldn't get that from you when I was sober in between drinking spells and I I want you to and so that caused me a ton of pain to go along with my depression and anxiety that's one of the contributing factors to me quitting drinking I'm curious was that on a conscious level or was that just like what it developed into when you would give me the cold shoulder for long periods of time after drinking episodes
1: I don't think it was. I don't think it was intentional because I didn't know about the words like boundaries and detachment, and um, you know, I didn't know and understand those. I didn't know about codependency. I didn't understand a lot of that. Um, I was worried about like Google searches um, coming up on the computer for the kids to see or you run across, and um, so I didn't. I didn't educate myself. In a way that I wish now I would have.
0: Did you feel like you were the only one going through this? Or did you think if you had done Google searches you would find all the answers? I think
1: that if I had. I mean, I know that I'm not the only one going through this because my mother and my sister were both married to alcoholics. Um, My father, you know, because my father was one. I knew I wasn't alone. I just, but, you know, for my mom, she divorced my dad um, when I was two. So that was pretty early. So I saw her like, I'm not going to put up with this anymore and leave. Um, And she had the support of her family because they were close by. So I know that some of the conversations were like, why are you staying early on? And then the more kids we had, you know, it got harder and harder to kind of justify leaving. So I don't think it was conscious by any means. I think I just grew apart. I accepted some of the the loneliness in the relationship. I had learned that if I was vulnerable with you, that it would often come back to haunt me, um, whether by ridicule or you blaming or using it against me. Um, so I kind of just developed those, um, you know, habits or um, survival traits just by living the life of it for many years. I didn't have a sense of believing what you were going to say because you always had a new idea, a new plan. You were always thinking of ways that you could incorporate the love of your wife and the love and affection of your kids along with your drinking, um, because that was also a love of yours. um, So I I was not. I was not like. I didn't believe that your plans were going to work because I thought, how could they? You you know, if we had like a chart of all of your plans and how many times the hashtag against it, like you failed, that would probably be pretty devastating for you to see. But maybe I should have put up a chart somewhere and said, oh, how many times did you break your rule in the first week of your new rules? Yeah, you know, um,
0: it's it's interesting because. So you didn't set boundaries and you didn't detach in a conscious purposeful way. Right. But that's exactly what you did.
1: But I did. It just yeah. took
0: a long time.
1: And I just and I just felt like I wasn't so much setting boundaries or detaching, I just felt like I was giving up. I felt like I was pulling away. I felt like, well, this is the reality that I'm living in. I'm living with this person that I'm not ready to leave. I'm not going to give up hope. Um be, you know. And I definitely did try the you know yelling and screaming and kicking and fighting and trying to get my way of you not to drink. I mean, it was presented early on in our relationship that you had a different view and love and appetite for it than I did. So For alcohol. Yeah, for alcohol. So it it, it wasn't a conscientious choice. It just happened over time. I think if I had known and set boundaries and if I think, you know, boundaries are different than ultimatums. I feel like if I had set a boundary and I knew about detachment, I feel like I could have like, I know this sounds mean, pushed you over the edge because there would be the cutoff. Like, no, this is your behavior. Just like, you know, you can't do that. Just like we did with child rearing, you know?
0: I'm afraid how I would have reacted. If, if I think you, you, had you had would had
1: have a... thrown a fit in a tantrum because yeah. you were very...
0: If you had dist- had a boundary, like if, if you're drunk, we're going to sleep in separate rooms... Man, I was not mature at all, and I would have that I would have thrown a hissy fit about that oh, yeah. for sure.
1: yeah. I mean, I just think though, like if I had known about that earlier on, like would it have changed anything? I don't know.
0: well, and and I don't know if if I had known your boundaries when I was sober if when I crossed the boundaries while drinking, if I would have been at least a little more. I don't know, a little more rational about it because I would have said, all right, look, she told me this was going to happen and this is what's happening. I think where we got in trouble was when in the middle of the night, you know, when I was drunk and you were irate, um,
1: that we both looked like lunatics.
0: Yeah. And if, you know, if, so if you said, you know, I'm, you know, you're sleeping on the couch or I'm sleeping on the couch, um, with Which no. I laugh
1: because we have love seats. We don't even have full-size couches. Well, we're short. <laughs> we're short.
0: I'm only 5'9", mm-hmm. and what are you, like
1: 5'4"? Yeah, but, yeah, I guess if we had talked about it, and, like, when you were sober and post-fight and post-argument, yeah. and if I had known about those things, then it could have been a more effective thing. So maybe you would have had in the back of your mind, oh, wow, she told me this is going to happen.
0: You did... Uh, give me an ultimatum once Mm -hmm. you did say you and the kids were going to leave and so I quit for some period of time I don't remember do you remember weeks or months
1: I don't remember
0: and then it slowly I weaseled it back in I told you I had come up with some new plans for drinking and it would be under control this time and I had new rules Mm -hmm.
1: I think for you, maybe that, now that I'm thinking like your uh, chart or some sort of graph to show all those, like, because you're kind of a black and white fact sort of thing. That's why the AA wasn't a spiritual connection and it was, you know, it didn't really work for you or you didn't think it would work for you necessarily because, but you like facts and you like data and you like to have that, you know, so maybe that track record could have proven some sort of evidence that, and and if i had brought that along with some boundaries i mean it
0: that might have helped i had that pretty well uh cataloged in my head i mean it's pretty much all it, i was either thinking about you know work or some specific conversation i was having or i was thinking about alcohol for uh, for many years mm-hmm. and so i had it pretty well tracked in my head all the things i had tried and failed i mean i guess i, I guess maybe having it in writing um might have Might have made it more kind of blatant and obvious and kind of a slap in the face kind of a thing for me.
1: Yeah, but you were very good at, at, um, (coughs) excuse me, like, um, I I don't want to say manipulating things to get what you want to make it sound like you were a bad person. It's just that alcohol was driving the, you know, driving the bus here. So there was a sense of manipulation So I started to check out, too. I started to believe, like, he's just, you know, he's just lying. He doesn't really, you know, think these things because he wants, you know, to make things better between us. He just wants to keep drinking. So. Right. I feel like, you know, but there is a sense of manipulation. And so then that's when I started to get cold and detached and just didn't care.
0: I think about the impact of your cold detachment on my eventual sobriety and I think it was a big factor. I you know, I finally it took forever, but I finally reached the point where I could no longer lie to myself and say everything in my relationship is fine. I you know, and and Sherry's just got to learn to tolerate drinking because I just drink like everybody else and drinking's a normal thing. I finally got to the point where I said, Oh, if this, you know, this isn't going well, both my drinking and my marriage. And so the way that you kind of, you know, I'm sorry to use this term, but, and I, I, I know it's not accurate, but at the time it felt accurate, the way I thought you were just a bitch half the time was really effective and helpful. And so I'm glad that that that's the turn that our relationship took. I mean, it, it's one of probably just a small handful of things that I can attribute the fact that we're still married to and that I'm sober. If not for that cold shoulder and the boundaries that you inadvertently set, mm-hmm. I don't think we'd be... we. If we were still together today, I would just be in active alcoholism and you would be detached and we would be living a miserable life. Because I don't think... I don't think I would have gotten sober if not for the cold shoulder that you yeah. turned toward me. So, yeah. so the, I guess the, the point that, you know, we are through our echoes of recovery group, which if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, we encourage you to check it out. You can learn more about it at echoesofrecovery.com, echoes of com. ECHOES of com. It's all about connection and Compassion and empathy for the loved ones of alcoholics. So, if you fit that bill, check us out. You don't have to be a spouse. Um, there are certainly parents and and of alcoholics and other you know other relationships involved in the program. But super common theme, especially as of late, is this whole topic of you know. I don't want to be in this situation anymore living with a, an active alcoholic or a frequently relapsing alcoholic who's making you know my life miserable you' you would be the person yeah, the, the spouse's life, life yeah. miserable um but I, I also don't want to get divorced so what do I do mm-hmm. and I think you know God. Where We're just, humans are compassionate people and especially when it's your spouse. If they come to you the next day and they say, you know, gosh, I drank again and I feel bad about that and I'm hurting... And I need help.
1: And then I would often think to myself, I don't give a shit.
0: Right. Yeah, you
1: did it again and you did it to me. And I think that you, I mean, you may have said the right word to frame where I was. I was a bitch.
0: Well, that's I'm not
1: a forgiving person like that because I have a very good memory and I just kept tallying them up. And I know that was probably not the good, good spirited human to be. Well,
0: it worked to But our I think it pushed
1: though. you, because I, I think maybe because that was, you know, like, that connection was, was what I could tell you were missing, and you loved the affection and yeah. the closeness that we had, and you coming from a relationship, or, you know, coming from parents that stayed married, you saw some connection. I didn't. I was fine to be by myself. Not really, but I can, I know it can happen, so if... If you weren't going to be present in the marriage, I can still go on because I didn't count on you. I didn't rely on you. I didn't look to you for things other than helping with the kids every once in a while and financial security and taking out the trash. And- so that's this is really
0: important. So you sometimes knew that what I needed more than anything was for you to kind of coddle me and hold me and, yes. and you would... Just say, I don't give a shit and push away.
1: I I get, like, as we're having this conversation, I can think so many times how how you would say things like, when you're upset, come to me. I'd be like, you're the last person I would come to. I mean, I can't imagine coming to anybody, you know, anybody less than you. Yeah. (laughs) Like,. I would be like, no, like I've got it thrown up on my face. I've gotten ridiculed about it. I'm just gonna hear some bullshit answer that you want to give me because you're gonna try to get away with drinking again. I don't care how sorry you are. I don't care how bad you feel. And I think like that first year of sobriety when you were really struggling, like I, en- I wouldn't say I enjoyed.
0: You almost said I, enjoyed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I feel like I did kind of enjoy your pain of having to struggle to get through your. Cravings and things like that and, and what you did because, you know, like you had had six months of sobriety at one time and then you relapsed. You had nine months of sobriety at one time and then you relapsed. Right. And so I guess I was like, yeah, sobriety isn't easy. And you know what? If the rest of your life is kind of sucky but you're there physically and mentally present, you know, to make these hard decisions to go through some of this crap with me, then this is what you need to do. I think that you have to have some suffering in a way. And I I would, you know, sometimes I would like look out into the living room if I was doing, making dinner and I would see you reading and I would get a little bit like frustrated like, oh, well, you know, he could be helping me with dinner. But, you know, I don't care because I'm in here doing my own thing. He's doing his own thing. We're not arguing and he's not talking to me about alcohol again because that was part of it too is, I just got so tired of listening to your plans or what you learned, what you learned, how you educated yourself, what your new memoir was that you're reading. Cuz you know, I felt like it that's what you needed to consume your life and I just needed to keep us going.
0: Well, that I mean that that's true that the the distance that I covered between then when I was still trying to find rules that I could put in place around my alcohol consumption that would keep me a drinker that would keep that would turn me into this moderate drinker that I dreamed and had this passion for becoming the the distance between that and where I am now where I think alcohol is repulsive and I think it's bad in any quantity and and I feel a little bit of pity for moderate drinkers and I would never want to be that it's you know the equivalent of drinking Drano for me mm-hmm that was a huge distance between those two mindsets and so getting there took all this reading and research and time and I'm sure you know it had to just become tremendously nauseating for you
1: well for because me, of you know
0: repeating it and repeating and repeating it the over the years over
1: again. of that we've had exerted energy yeah. into alcohol yeah exactly like from the beginning of our relationship basically and then during your active alcoholism and then the relapses and you know it was like good God, there are other things in the world besides your drinking. Right. This is you, you know. And so I got a little fed up. And I and I definitely had already protected myself and detached. And when you were like, oh, I can barely get out of bed and go to work. And you, I'd be like, well, you have to. This yeah. was a choice that you made. We wanted to buy this bakery so you could be the soccer dad in the afternoons. And part of it is getting up early in the morning and opening that bakery, you yeah. know. So... I kind of looked at it like you made this bed and you're lying in it and I am not going to suffer with you and that was that's been something that had been hard for me was not owning and wearing your pain yeah. and disassociating myself and breaking that codependency. I felt but bad that, when you were in pain that it happened. hurt me but I had to stop that. Because but that happened dragging.
0: over time I mean part of yeah, this is we went 10 years of relapse and recovery and relapse and recovery and trying and quitting and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And over 10 years, you just use the word calloused. Yeah, you mm-hmm. definitely got callous.
1: Yeah. If I hadn't been callous, but I understood what detachment and understood what boundaries were and, and working on myself, maybe that would have been a shorter stint because I could have pushed you a little further than I needed to, but I certainly towards the end was not giving you sympathy there were not laughs and giggles. We were not putting up fake Facebook page posts of us laughing and having a good time together. So
0: let's drive. Because, so let's drive this home, Sherry. When we work with people through Echoes of Recovery, or just readers or listeners who email us and and you know want to hear more about our experience, one of the things that's hard for me, and I think hard for you too, is we see where people are we know where they're trying to get to and we want to do everything we can to help them along because we know there's it's only going in one direction alcoholism is a progressive disease there's no such thing as turning yourself into a moderate drinker there's no such thing as you know going back to it being fine that the drinking is still there um, and the relationship can can somehow still flourish it can't it can't alcoholism and love and intimacy just cannot coexist so we want to help people get where they want to go and so talking about boundaries and talking about detachment is the way to go but we deal with some really nice people, they're kind they're generous a lot of them have really strong faith based views as do we you and I are, are um, very spiritual people. Even though I don't think alcoholism is a spiritual disease, it doesn't mean we're not spiritual people. But a lot of these people are really nice. I hope you're going to take too this nice. the right way. <laughs> Me picturing some of the people that we work with <laughs> becoming the bitch that you became—I don't know. I don't know that I can see them I doing it.
1: Yeah, I worry that too. But but they have to. They have to toughen up.
0: They have to set these boundaries and and do and detach and say, "Listen, if you're going to drink, you need to find somewhere else to live." Or and I, I'm not trying to set anyone's rules for them. Or if you're going to drink, you're going to sleep in a different bedroom. And guess what? Tomorrow, when you feel like crap about it, you're not going to come and cuddle with me. It's just not. It's over. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And. These are the rules because I have to move on, and you can come with me or you cannot come with me. I'm not saying you on this podcast training anymore. I'm not trying to encourage anyone to get a divorce. Like, that's the last thing I want to do. I'm also not trying to encourage anyone to stay together. They've got to figure it out for themselves. But they've got to figure out what the boundaries are, and then um, not ultimatum style, not like you do this or else. But hey, here's the deal I'm not going to be around you if you're going to continue to be a drinker. Mm hmm. And this is what this is going to look like. When you come home and you've been drinking, you know, I'll, I'll see you in a couple days. Not even I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you in a couple days. Because in the morning you're going to be a, a sad puddle about what you did and you're going to be full of shame. I don't
1: want to, you know, Sherry, they've got to say, I don't want to deal with that either, don't they? Right. You, you can't own and, and carry the burden of their shame with you because you have to rid yourself of that. It is their shame; they need to deal with it. You can't be codependent in that. Like that's what I think drove. That's what sucked me down for a yeah. long time. Yeah. And I'd feel bad for you, and I think that's why. Then I got calloused and hard, and now I'm trying to come out of that. Yeah. A little bit, you know. I, I You're feel like I'm making great progress. Thank you. I feel like that has been a hard thing for me to be open and vulnerable and be loving again. Um, But I think if you were setting boundaries and and having a detachment and sticking to these sort of things, then you won't have to go to the extreme that I did in a way. Yeah. You know, and yeah, like, I didn't didn't need, you know, I need you to just get up and do your shit. You just do you like we'll use our teenager thing. You do you. Yeah. You know, you do you. And when you want to come and be with me, I'm driving this bus now.
0: I think that's what our teenagers said a year ago. I think okay, they would actually so make really, fun of us for saying that now. Okay,
1: okay. So, yeah, so it's like there's a new, you know, a new sheriff in town. And, you know, kind of taking on that that role of, like, I'm going to be the leader in the family. And if you want to join the rest of the family in a sober world, this is where we are. Yeah. But we'll see you when you get there. Not that you're going to stop loving them. Not that you're going to, like, you know not be a support system, but you can't be there only. Either.
0: Well, you can't fix them. We, you can't we have, fix them. we've, we've universally you agreed can't to control that. It. You can't fix them, you can't change them. You also can't coddle them and you can't, you know, clean up their messes and you can't, you know, wipe their nose. Right. You just got to you got to say I'm done. I'm done. And whatever I'm done means <laughs> that's that's the thing you got to put some some rules around. When you say
1: clean up messes, it just kind of made me laugh. Like there was couple times that you've thrown up in your drinking career, which you didn't do often, but one time you did in the car, and I let it sit in the driveway, in the sun, and then when you finally woke up at like 10 or 10.30 in wait, the wait, morning.
0: Wait. you, you got to clarify. I was sitting up in the passenger seat of the car, and I threw up on myself. Yeah, you didn't but just let it... the throw-up sit in the car. You let me, wearing the throw-up, oh. sit in the
1: car. Oh, that's right. So then it was, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, you sat right. in the car I asleep woke up the next many times. So I forgot. Sun, yeah,
0: and it was unpleasant.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I let you deal with that. And I didn't get
0: mad at you. No, like you but you knew
1: because well. you knew that you did it, and you realize you probably also were very aware of the things that I had been doing to keep things afloat. But yeah, let them clean up their own messes unless it's a hazard, you know, for around the house or something. Yeah, like. You know, I would leave like the rear bottles if you were not putting them in the recycling. I would only clean them up if I knew that the kids were going to go down to our family room downstairs. Yeah. um, That next morning. But if they had something else going on and they weren't going to be in the family room playing games or watching TV or playing with toys, I didn't clean it up. Yeah. After a while.
0: So the things that led to my permanent sobriety were depression, anxiety, and um, the lack of love and affection coming from my wife and that's not you changing me that's you setting your own boundaries your own rules sticking to them and I had to deal with the consequences and the consequences was that you know I wasn't getting the um, the kind of soothing affection again sex is a different story we've talked about it we'll continue to talk about it oh, We're not gonna, we're not going to talk about it today but Thank the goodness. I wasn't getting consoled mm-hmm. I wasn't there was no sympathy coming my way And that was huge, that was huge, and I think, yeah, if we can, if you can, um, some of our listeners and some of the people that we work with, if they can grow the same crusty calluses you Mm -hmm. had, uh, it'll help.
1: Just callus, don't say crusty. Crusty
0: calluses, crusty bitchy calluses. It was great.
1: I became scaly. You
0: became scaly.
1: Yes. Think of an alligator instead of a crusty bitch.
0: All right. Sounds so, good. Yeah. Well?
1: Well, thanks for bringing this topic up. Yeah. I'm kind of giggling when I think of the time that I I, was, I like this I think topic. about the time, how many times I did leave you sleeping in the car. Yeah.
0: I like this topic because it, it, it didn't make you cry. It's hard for me to watch you cry sometimes. That's unnecessary. And, and honestly, it's a helpful emotion for the podcast and for the listeners. But you got to like go down into your angry mode for today's topic and you get to think about... Well, it was
1: kind of sad that I got a little, you know... I really wish that that hadn't grown inside me.
0: Yeah. But I, mean, I already
1: had a little bit of it to start with, with just my upbringing. So it wasn't yeah. a big transformation
0: You were a little bit me. scaly to begin with.
1: So I just knew...
0: But that, But that's the
1: point. Because
0: yeah. many of our listeners and many of the people we work with It is a long way to go to grow those scales. Mm
1: -hmm. But they got to do it. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah.
0: It's really important.
1: I mean, if you're not, if, you know, if they're not going to, if their loved one isn't going to change, they need to, to adapt instead of change. They need to to, move into their recovery. They need
0: to do it for themselves. And who knows, maybe it'll cause enough pain for their loved one that it'll just tip them over the edge. Mm Mm-hmm. And in addition to the pain they're causing themselves, it'll make them say, "Enough's enough." Yep. All right. Well, thanks for talking about this with me today. Again, Welcome. if you are interested in reading and in additional listening about our story, "Sober Evolution" is available for pre-order on Amazon, and we'd get you a PDF copy right away if you if you ordered today. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I am Matt Salis. This is the Intoxicated Podcast, and we thank you for listening.